40 miles to the north of Ephesus is the city of Smyrna, recipient of the second letter from Jesus. Smyrna means myrrh, as in the sweet-smelling spice in which dead bodies were wrapped, such as with Jesus in John 19. Ironically, Smyrna's connection with death was seen when one of the most famous martyrdoms in church history took place in her stadium in the second century AD. Smyrna, like Ephesus, was a harbor city located on the Aegean coast. Whereas Ephesus had one port, Smyrna was blessed with two ports, thus enhancing her strategic position. As was typical of such cities, Smyrna was always vying for attention and trying to lift her importance above her chief rivals, that of Ephesus and Pergamum. Coins found in the archaeological excavations read, first in Asia in beauty and size, a statement continually contested by Ephesus and Pergamum, especially since Smyrna had a population of 100,000, which was smaller than both of her rival cities. From a historical perspective, Smyrna was established as a city in the 11th century BC. But then around 600 BC, the Lydian king Aleatus destroyed Smyrna and it was reduced to the status of a village throughout the classical period. But then sometime in the Greek Hellenistic period, the city was reestablished and built up. Now, the refounding of the city was so dramatic that they talked about the city as dying and then coming back to life again. In 195 BC, Smyrna became the first city to establish a cult to Rome by building a temple for the goddess Roma, the personification of Rome. This and other future actions would lead Cicero, a first century BC Roman statesman, to call Smyrna the city of our most faithful and most ancient allies. It was due to Smyrna's ardent loyalty and faithfulness that in 26 AD, the Roman Emperor Tiberius chose Smyrna from 11 Asian cities to become the world center of imperial worship for himself. Uh, Smyrna was known for many additional things, including her wine products as well as her athletic contests. In fact, Smyrna's athletic games were well known throughout the entire province. And winners of these athletic contests would receive a laurel wreath, also known as a crown, which may factor in to the letter. What's more, there was another crown in the city. When you stand in the harbor area and look to the city center, looming 460 feet in the background is Mount Pagus, on which Smyrna's citadel stood, and it actually looks like a crown. It's why ancient writers such as Aristides called it the city's crown. Uh, of note, Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna is the shortest of the seven letters. Furthermore, it's one of only two of the letters that doesn't contain any confrontation, only commending or praiseworthy words and instructions. May we have ears to hear as we dig in to the letter to Smyrna. All right, so good to see Brad there again on the screen. If you're not familiar with Brad Gray, he'll be here next week. He was a teaching pastor here uh, for a few years and now has a ministry that, uh, that Steve just referred to. I consider him close to a 
close to an expert on, on biblical context of the, the New Testament. So you're going to get so much because he's here next week and you're going to really super enjoy that. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Craig, uh, Craig asked me, uh, first of all, he said, hey, uh, would you do one of the weeks in this series? Can you do February 21st? And I said, great. And so I signed up. He said, I'll get back to you. And he got back to me. He said, it's going to be in Revelation. I said, great. Um, I have whole Bibles that I've never opened to Revelation because it's, so, it's got so many amazing stories in it. But we, uh, we decided to break it up the way we did. And so I, I felt like, well, Craig, Craig is on the first week and then Mike and then Brad. And so you're really getting a lot of expertise on both sides, hopefully a little bit today. Um, but some great, some great things to learn from the uh, letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. So, so glad to see you today. Thank you for those of you that are joining us online. And I thought before we'd start, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. You can flip there on your phone or if you have a Bible, great. Um, we're going to be in verse 8 in just a, just a minute. But let me, let me just read to you who's writing this. Because first of all, there's lots of letters to churches in the New Testament. But these are the words of Jesus. This is Jesus' letter to the words as taken down by the Apostle John. Now John has this vision and he sees, he sees this, these things happening in Revelation 1. He sees seven lampstands, and the lampstands are to represent the church because the church is intended to be the light of the world. And he sees seven stars, and they're the angels of the church. Now, an angel could be, and by, by the Greek word, could either be an angel. I kind of rather like that, as, actually, as a pastor, that an angel's been assigned to us. Or it could be the spiritual leader or pastor of that particular church. But listen, listen to the words that John used to describe Jesus, because it's unlike anything you've ever heard before. Okay, this is the, the description. He says, I saw a figure walking among the lampstands. He said, and it was someone like the son of man. I'm in verse 13 in chapter one, if you want to look at it. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a gold sash across his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like the bronze, like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. What an image of Jesus. That's a fierce image of Jesus, wouldn't you agree? That's an image of Jesus that's a glorified Jesus. That's a powerful Jesus. And all through these letters that Jesus dictates to the churches, he uses different parts of the description of who he is to kind of introduce himself to the churches. I kind of rather like to have that in your background as you think about these words now that are being written to the churches. As I start today, I also want to acknowledge some great sources. Uh, both Craig and, and Brad provided some great resources for all of us that are going to be doing the series. Um, but a, great, a couple great books that were really helpful to me. One was by a pastor named Scott Sauls. He's a pastor now in Nashville, formerly at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. Uh, Tim Keller's church, if, you, if you're familiar with that name. And he did an amazing job with a book called um, A Gentle Answer that just came out. And it, it, it refers back to first century Roman life for Christians. And also did a great series. They, uh, the Ch Redeemer Pres did a great series on this many, many years ago. Um, that I, I really valued. And then also a book by Michael Gorman called Reading Revelation Responsibly. Uh, if you're wanting to get deeper in, he makes, he makes it easy to understand and you can go through all the images throughout Revelation. And those are a couple of good sources that I just wanted to remind you of. 
Okay, the letter today is the letter to the church in Smyrna. Let's, let's, just, let's just hear what, what Jesus has to say to the church. He says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who was the first and the last who died and came to life again. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Would you pray with me for a moment? So Father, we do want to have ears to hear. We want to know what, what the meaning of these words are. We want to know how it applies to our life today. I pray that you would open our hearts today in every way that we might hear what the Spirit has to say to us in this day. Amen. Well, just another by way of background, a couple things you should know about Revelation. There's a few simultaneous themes going on through the whole book of Revelation. Some of them talk about the creation or the recreation, the whole, the whole idea of something new coming out of something old. Redemption, there's judgment, there's victory. But one of the other themes that is central to the whole story that is simultaneously being developed is the story of witness of the suffering pilgrim church. That's one of the themes that is kind of perpetuated throughout the course of the book. It's the story of a faithful missional people empowered by the spirit to bear witness in the spite of danger and persecution. And so the common element in each letter was to call for uncompromising faithfulness in the face of persecution and suffering. So by way of background, it just gives us a little perspective on where, what Revelation is sort of trying to do with all five of those themes. Now one of the things last week Craig went through was the church, the letter to the church at Ephesus. And the gist of Ephesus is you've lost your first love. The love that you had at first is no longer there, whether it's love for God or love for others. And Craig talked about how we have to have vigilance to speak truth and how we have to have love to balance that out. And when they get out of balance, we either become annoying or we become, we become off-putting, unattractive to others. And Jesus is saying, no, we need to get back to the love. And then he comes to Smyrna and all he can do is commend. And I can't help but think that Jesus sees a contrast between the two churches. And he says, yes, this, 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 is, this is good. What I see here is that you are rich the things that you're emulating, the things that you're embodying, the things that you're expressing are the very things of God and they reflect my heart. Now one thing that's very consistent for first century Roman Christians is life was very, very hard. Picture, don't picture buildings, picture little house churches, people that were on the very, 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 very lowest end of the economic spectrum, no influence on the society or culture at large, Rome was in charge. If you know anything about Rome, Rome ruled with an iron fist. Rome was the military power, the governmental power, the cultural power. And alongside of Rome, just as the time of Jesus, were religious authorities, i.e. The, the, the Jewish religious authorities, coexisting at the same time. 
Rome handled all the criminal activity, but the religious authority also was existing and still in place. And then underneath the sort of the religious authority was this little band of Christians meeting in little house churches, poor, unable to really have a platform, as it were, other than their lives. And while the, the, Jewish, the Jewish leadership gained some concessions from Rome, in other words, when it came to the idea of who to worship or how to worship, Rome instituted a state religion, a law that said, you will worship the emperor. You will be part, we, you will honor the emperor as a god. In fact, you will, you will use words like Caesar, which is a, an expression of, of a title. Caesar is Lord. You'll burn incense and that'll be your expression of love and support and loyalty to the emperor. And depending, if you read some of Roman history, depending on the mental health of the emperor at the time, that was either enforced with, with a bloody brutality or it was sort of let go and people were sort of left to their own. But the, the Jews got somewhat of an exception to that. They were, over the, over the century, they had, they had they'd come to an agreement with Rome where they didn't have to say Caesar is Lord. And they were able to kind of get away with that. But the, the Christians, who the Romans considered to be a sect, a, something under the care of the, Jew, of the Jewish system, the Christians drew a line and they said, we will only say one thing. We will say Jesus is Lord. And so if it ever comes to that, that's where, that's where we stand. And so, of course, whenever there was conflict between the Jewish authorities and the Christians or whether there was converts from Judaism coming over to the Christian side and the Jewish authorities got upset, they would slander the Christians. They would make up false things about them. And the Russians would, or sorry, the Russians, the Romans would get all upset, sorry. I don't know where that came, I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> uh, the Romans would get all upset and, uh, and, they, would, and, and they would enforce these, this law and they would put Christians, so to speak, on the spot. And they would say, you got to say it. You got to say it. If you don't say it. Well, there was one example of that, and, and Brad just referred to it. Um, there was a famous, he's now a saint in the Catholic Church, um, St. Polycarp. Polycarp was probably a young man, even a teenager at the time the letter got circulated. So he, he, he heard this, this, this letter from Jesus. But now he's an old man. And when you read some of the history, it appears that either the Romans or the Jewish authorities thought, Let's take down the elders of this movement. Let's take down the octogenarians and let's see if we can sort of make them disperse and fall apart if we take their oldest members and we put them to the sword and surely they'll cave. And then the whole thing will again be sort of dispersed and be brought back under control. Polycarp, if you read about some of just the life he led and the history that he had, was one of gentleness and kindness and he had this amazing ability to even in the heat of the moment, to have the right words to say, to both encourage his little flock of believers, but also to, to come up against the Roman proconsul. In this case, he has this famous line as he was, he was brought into the Colosseum, stadium full of people. The Roman proconsul said, you have to say these words, you have to renounce Jesus and you have to say Caesar is Lord and you'll live. And then he said this, these are the famous words of Polycarp. For 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my Lord and Savior? And for that, he was put to death. But his death didn't end the movement. In fact, if anything, the word, by the way, the word martyr in the first century was 
was interpreted as witness. It was a witness to the loyalty and the faithfulness of one man towards his Savior and the love he had for his Savior. And that helped explode and accelerate the movement. It, the, the story was told again and again of how Polycarp came before the, the, the challenge and met the challenge, and he was put to death for it. And that has motivated the church. It, it motivated the church at that time, and it, it continues. The, the blood of the martyrs, they say sometimes, is the seed of the church. And it was sacrifices like that that made, made the church prosper. Now, when I read an account of him this week, I, I could not help but think about a pastor that our church supports in Indonesia. His name is Sandy, Pastor Sandy. And some of you know his story. He's actually been on our stage before, and we've told his story before. Amazing guy, humble, you know, this tall, quiet, unassuming. When we went to visit his church, literally the area that he ministers in, you're driving down the road and we're in the back of the van. The translator turned to us and said, no photos. Don't take any pictures. In other words, if you have your camera out, because it was all kinds of scenes on the side of the road as you drive down there. But it wasn't an area that Christianity is not welcome. No photos. And then we pulled up to the front of the church. They said, okay, you'll exit here. We'll, when, the, when the service is order, over, we'll, we'll meet you in the back. That's how we do it. We alternate. We go in one door and out another door. And then you, you go into this little, this little room that's, you know, you know, this section, all low and dark, and the joy and the love and the brightness of the children, and Sandy gets up and preaches, and he's on fire, and you go, oh, man, how does the persecuted church, how does it, how does it just have this unbelievable center? And I think it's because they reflect a lot of what you read about in this first century church at Smyrna. And that's, I'm picturing Sandy as we talk about these churches because I know how difficult it is for people in that situation. You know, one of the things we realize as we get older is there's no such thing as a pain-free life. Life is hard. Some of you have been living through hardship for a long time, but you live long enough and you'll experience pain and suffering. Our world is broken and Paul says in Romans 8, he says, we are this world, you and me, are in bondage to decay. We're in bondage to decay. Not a very cheery thought for a Sunday morning. He goes on to say, though, that all creation is groaning under this bondage. It's groaning. And for a first century Christian, the groaning most often came in the form of human anger directed at them from the powers that be, whether it was governmental or religious. And what's true today in the persecuted church was also true in Smyrna. Christians were on the margins. They were the poor. They were disregarded. They were subject to brutalities. But even there, the light of the church had not gone out. Pastor Scott Sauls, who I mentioned earlier in his book, um, A Gentle Answer, he has this great quote. He said, even though the persecution of Christians was common, the average Roman citizen held them in high esteem because of how life-giving they were as neighbors. If you were poor and sick, disabled, a widow, an abused woman, an at-risk child, you knew it was the Christians who would take care of you. I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus, when he came, he said, you're going to suffer, but you're rich. Look at what you've got. Look at what you're doing. Look at how your love for me is being expressed, even if things aren't working out for you. I think that's one of the reasons he said that. You know, Jesus looked at each of these churches, and there was a collective spirit a collective spirit that the whole church embodied. I, 
I kept thinking about us and wonder what that would look like for a church like Central and Western Christianity, as it were. Would we be known as a church that is so in love with Jesus that all we can do is give things away and express our love and welcome? I hope so. I'm not naive to think that there aren't some challenges, but I do hope that our collective spirit on a church like us today would be one that is as gracious, even if we're pushed to the sidelines. Some of our best work can be done in the margins, as these churches have proven. Jesus is also saying to this church, it's about to get worse. He says, don't be afraid. But the devil is going to put some of you into prison to test you. And you're going to suffer for, for 10 days. The 10 days, by the way, commentators are all over the map on that. It could be a literal 10 days. It could be just a short term. Or it could mean just this is going to be indefinite. 10 in Revelations has all kinds of meanings like completeness and total, totality. So it's, it's unclear as to what the 10 days really meant. But let's look at three things. I thought we would just go back to the regular old three-point sermon, okay? Um, they don't all begin with the same letter. My apologies. I should have worked a little harder on that. But I want to talk about three things. The first thing is this. This is a suffering church. And so I want to talk about how suffering is not wasted in God's economy. The second thing I want to talk about is how Jesus in these four verses wants to connect this world to the next. It seems like he goes back and forth between what's happening here and what's to come. Talk about that. And then the third thing is Jesus knows the cost. Jesus knows what it's the cost of following him. Let me make this first statement. Prim Jesus' primary will for your life is that you become a fabulous person in his image. Jesus' primary will is that you become increasingly a better and better version of yourself that reflects his image to the world. That's what he desires. And he'll stop at nothing sometimes to help us get to that. You know, sometimes at baby dedications, we hold these little babies and we say to the parents, you know, what you're raising here is not a baby and not a child. You're raising somebody who's going to be an adult someday. And we want them to come into adulthood with all the beauty and strength and hope that we can instill in them. And sometimes that beauty and strength and hope comes from overcoming obstacles throughout their lives. As much as us parents would love to remove all the pain from every one of our kids' lives, we have to recognize that sometimes those things create in them a resilience and a chance to overcome and a chance to prove some things about who God is and who they are. According to the Apostle Paul, one thing that suffering does is it makes us more resilient. Read this scripture with, you can see it up on the screen. It says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Sufferings is mentioned so often in the life of the New Testament. And nothing builds character faster than facing obstacles and challenges. In the middle of the short letter to Smyrna, Jesus says, some of you will be put into prison. And he says it this way, I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you. Now, the, the Satan and the devil get mentioned for the very first time in these few verses. He, he ends up defeated badly by the end of Revelation, but this is the first time he's mentioned. Jesus is speaking from something that he knows about. See, Jesus went head-to-head -head with the devil in the wilderness and faced a test with the devil, and the devil's schemes have not changed. It's always to distort God's best and to make it look like God is withholding something good. And I just thought that maybe part of what, what, what Jesus is trying to imply or to impress upon the people of Smyrna is that 
the test will come, the temptations of the enemy will turn into tests that will really test. And so what does Jesus follow up with? He says, don't be afraid going into the test. Be faithful if you're in it. Be faithful. I don't know, probably looking around a room like this or watching online, some of you are in a test right now that if you could tell us, it would be horrible. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to say to us. But think about what a test does. A test reveals truth, right? If you're a high school teacher, you're teaching on the American Revolution the whole semester, you want to see if your teaching's any good and if the students are retaining anything. So you, run a, you do a test and you see, will that reveal the, the level of knowledge that you had intended to impart and the level of knowledge that your students have, right? At least in traditional education systems. And like you... I've, I've had a number of tests in my life. Some of them haven't gone as well. I'm going to tell you a story in just a moment. But I also want to go back to the Apostle Paul because he says this. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times it was probably, by the way, a physical ailment of some kind or an injury. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. God is saying, Paul, see, this is a test and this one isn't going to go away. This one is going to stay with you. But on the platform, on the stage of your suffering, on the stage of this thorn, my glory is going to be revealed. My power is going to be revealed because it's not just you, Paul. It's a watching world that is going to be impacted by that. For Paul, who had all these amazing spiritual experiences, it was to keep him from being conceited and maybe to help him engage better with fellow sufferers in this world. Well, here's a story of one of my failings. I was a young husband, three months. Ann and I had been married three months. And uh, she had just taken a job. We were over on the east side of the state, uh, taking a job at U of M Hospital as a, as a nurse in the um, heart transplant uh, department. High stress, she was new to town, so to speak, had only lived in Michigan a few months, no friends, she was exhausted and stressed every night. And I had this bright idea that we should go skiing um, up in northern Michigan to meet my family. And we'd done that before. And uh, the only problem was it got to be Thursday and there was a blizzard warning in Michigan. That doesn't happen very often, but it was literally a blizzard warning. I've only heard of a couple since then. Northern Michigan was being blanketed, high winds, heavy snows, and I was like, of course we're going to go. McKay's go in the weather, we don't care. I should have been smarter about that. Ann was not game. She called me and said, can we please not go tonight? I'm exhausted. She had to work the whole day. We weren't going to leave till 5. So we we're going to do it in the dark. And she said, can we just go up tomorrow? I said, of course not. Tomorrow morning is going to be powder. It's going to be the most amazing skiing ever. We've got to get there. Now, mind you, I had a two-wheel drive Toyota pickup, the little kind. Two-wheel drive, rear two-wheel drive. So in my wisdom, I bought some tire chains thinking, you know, if we get really stranded, we'll throw some tire chains on the back. That'll, that'll get us through. Tire chains never, never made it. But so we started driving north. Um, I would describe the ride as a combination of silence and then very vocal. <laughs> and I could tell this was our first big fallout, you know, 
she was very unhappy. And I was so insensitive, I'll tell you, as, even as it's being recorded now. I was so insensitive to what her needs were and how tired she was. And the stress was not going away because we got to West Branch. We're going up I-75. We started scraping bottom on I-75. There was not a single other car. We were scraping, literally. And so then I couldn't even hide anymore that the roads were bad because it was, it was so loud and we just kept going. And there was no way to get in a way to get off the exit, off the highway. We finally got to Grayling. It was like 2 in the morning, the Grayling exit. To my left, I could see the lights of a Holiday Inn through the kind of the fog created by the snow. And she said, Mike, please, please, can we stop? And I said, ours is the next exit. Just one more exit. And I made this fatal mistake. I made this comment that has now come back to bite me several times in my life. I said, trust me, I've been driving these roads all my life. So we got to the water's exit. The, the exit was completely snowed over, big drift. All we could see were the two reflectors going up the side. I aimed for the center, gunned it as hard as we could, and I got up the ramp. Believe it or not, I was like, see, this isn't so bad. We turned left, went into Waters. Waters is a bunch of little bars. And then there's a, a couple of um, the 1960-era strip motels, you know what I mean? Those, those little ones that sit kind of low. One had a light on. That'll come back. Uh, we, uh, we, we had to go eight miles off the exit to get to the place we were staying. We made it three. We got up, I went up a hill, came to a dead stop in the middle of the road. Dead stop, like bottomed out, up off, all four wheels off the ground. I said, Ann, you get in and drive and I'll push. And I, there was no sound. It was because she was in the middle of a sob. She couldn't even speak. She was so distraught. So I said, all right, all right, all right. I had at the last minute thrown in some cross-country skis for both of us in the back. I said, let's get the skis on. Let's ski back to the last light we saw, which was the hotel, okay? Isn't this getting better and better? She was not speaking, and I wasn't sure. She told me later that she was trying to do the math in her head to see if an annulment was still in order. We got, this is the best part. This is no lie. We, uh, we got to the hotel, and this guy, this owner, we woke him up. It was 3 in the morning. And I mean, this, if this hadn't worked, I had never thought about what would happen. We would have to ski probably back to the car and spend the night there. I don't know. Um, we woke him up. I still remember he came out in his yellow bathrobe. I don't know why that, that, that detail. He came out and he looked at Ann. He looked at me. He said, one room or two. <laughs> no lie. I know that sounds like a preacher story. It's exactly what he said. And I... Oh yeah, somebody asked me, you know, somebody asked me the first service, all these great biblical truths. They said, what happened to the car? Okay. So he took us back, and he was so kind. He took us back in the morning, he had a chain, he just yanked it. We were, it was a snow drift, and they had plowed around it. He just pulled us backwards and got out, and then the roads were clear, and we went on our way. Uh, anyway, I, I couldn't believe what a test it was that revealed something about myself that, that I didn't like. And it took me a long time, and I'm still working on it, by the way. We've only been married 32 years. It's getting better. <laughs> Although 20 years after that event, 20 years, so it's been 10 years ago, uh, I did the same exact thing. I, I, I forced my family to go out into a winter storm, and we got stranded um, at the Comfort Inn and Heart this time. But I'll tell you that story some other time. <laughs> and I lost my place because I had so much fun with that. <laughs> In verse 9, Jesus says, you are rich. 
So a sandwich between afflictions and poverty and slander, Jesus is recognizing that there's something of immense value in the life of the people of Smyrna. They have passed the test. They've kept their love alive for Jesus and for each other and for others. There's something intangible that Jesus picks up from them, and it's exactly what he's looking for. Because once lives are refined through suffering and things are put into proper perspective and priorities are laid out, it's easy for God's glory then to be revealed. And in God's economy, that's what matters. I know some of you have been through tests or you're going through tests and you would never wish some of them on your worst enemies. I know that happens. Your priorities, though, changed along the way. People came out of the woodwork that you never expected and all of a sudden you felt a certain kind of intangible love that you had never experienced before. And maybe just part of your heart and trust in a loving Savior is something that just grew for you. And I have to tell you, I've been in ministry for 20 years. The one thing that I did not expect was to have my breath taken away by people who express faith in the worst of conditions, where they say things, sometimes we prayed and prayed and prayed that the cancer would go away and it didn't. And so we're standing at a funeral and people say, you know what, this is not what we were hoping for. This is not what we asked for. But we, we are trusting a God who has a perspective on this that will help us someday. Right now, it, it just isn't gonna make any sense. That literally, is, is so breathtaking, it's, it's even hard to think about because I'm picturing some people in my mind that I've walked through some journeys that they have just overwhelmed me with their, their love for Jesus in the midst of the terrible trials. So Jesus wants to build our character. He's in the character building business and no suffering, just to me, let me assure you, no suffering is wasted. Secondly, Jesus connects this world to the next. In these few verses, Jesus mentions death and life five times. Now, the stakes are obviously high. In fact, life is what he wants for us, life fully in this world and fully in the next. In verse 8, he says, he is the first and the last. He is the one who died and came to life again. I was thinking, why did he use that particular description of himself for this particular church? And I think because life and death were in the balance, but also he wanted to impress on people. The way he wants to impress on us is that he has overcome death. That, and he has a vision for us for life that is so, so powerful. And in fact, the fact that he came to life again was the life-giving thing for this little first century body of believers. We have a hard time because of the separation of years sometimes to realize this. But the first century Christians, the thing that fueled them the thing that made this quote-unquote all worthwhile was that they had seen this man die and they had seen him come to life again. That event, people reported on the fact that the, the man who died for them had come back to life again. That was the thing that made the scared disciples, if you know that story, become bold evangelists, all of them martyred for their faith. It gave fuel to the churches here and beyond. The one who died and came to life again was an inspiration. And sometimes we, we kind of get reinvigorated about that at Easter. It's so important to remind ourselves all the time. He is the one who died. That's the thing that has based, been the basis of the Christian faith for centuries. It appears the stakes are getting higher. We read in verse 10, it says, he says, be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life. Be faithful in the process, even to the point of death. 
You see, to be put in prison, by the way, in the Roman system, it wasn't like a, a few days, like a, a, it was a timeout. It was a precursor to execution. They didn't have time for anything else. So to be put in prison was actually a pretty, pretty significant thing that probably was leading to some kind of a crisis, like an like a execution of some type. And just so you don't think that Jesus is casual about, oh, just be faithful to the point of death and, and you, you're, you're going to get something. He's, he's got a, he kind of revealed how he feels about death and suffering when he walked on this earth. In fact, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, let me give you this background quickly. He had friends, a friend named Lazarus, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus died and was buried. And Jesus was notified and he got there and he first encounters the, the, the family's grieving and he weeps with them. But then he comes to the tomb and John makes this amazing observation of Jesus. So imagine watching Jesus at the tomb. There's a stone in front of the grave. And it says, Jesus, deeply moved, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across it. Take away the stone, he said. Tim Keller, one of my absolute favorite authors, says this about this little scene. He said, the phrase is deeply moved. The translators all say deeply moved because nobody wanted to touch the Greek word that it actually means. It means Jesus was furious. He was roaring. He was incensed. He was bellowing with anger like an angry bull. That's Jesus deeply moved. That's fierce Jesus deeply moved looking at death, looking at the thing that would be most disturbing to most of us. And he's just, he's acknowledging in front of everybody that this is not the world he created. He did not create a world with suffering and death and evil in it. And he's angry at death. He's not angry at the family. He's deeply moved because death is not part of his equation. And so Jesus came and he wrote himself into the human story. He came so that he might come into this world to show us a way back to the Father to die for our sins so that we might have an opportunity to begin the rest of our lives to confront the evil and diminish the evil in our own lives so that we can start to confront the evil in this world. When he said to the church at Smyrna, I'm the one who died and came to life again, he means I am the resurrection and the life. The one who died and came to life means the restoration of our lives. In fact, Revelation 21, the very end of Revelation, is this great passage he says, then I saw, John, this is John speaking, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride dressed beautifully for her husband. And I, saw, and, and I, and the, then I heard a voice saying from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, and no more crying, and no more mourning and no more pain for the old order of things will have passed away. The one from the throne said, see, I am making everything new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you realize that new heavens and new earth means New you, new loved ones, your friends, your loved ones, restored, renewed, brought back to us. This world, we don't go fly away to some place in heaven. We actually, the vision of the scriptures is that God is going to do something new here. This world, our world. That's the perspective of Jesus. And then the final thing, Jesus knows the cost. 
In slide, uh, sorry, verse 9 and verse 10, he says, I know your affliction and your poverty, and I know about the slander. I know about all the suffering, the affliction, poverty, and slander. Jesus takes your suffering personally. I want you to know that. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, the Apostle Paul, who was then Saul, and it says Saul was uttering murderous threats against people of the way. He was taking men and women and throwing them into prison, and he was zealous for that. And he hears this voice from heaven, he's knocked down, and it says, the, the voice said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. See, Jesus puts his name right on the line when it comes to suffering. He takes it personally. Think of the things that Jesus suffered, just for a second. He, he was born into a poor family. He had no material possessions. In fact, at his death, it said they gambled for the one possession he owned, which was his garment. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He watched his whole life work kind of evaporate. He was in constant conflict with authorities. He spent a night agonizing over the events of the next day. He experienced physical, torturous pain he felt forgotten by the Father. So when Jesus says he knows, it's because he knows. I know the affliction and the poverty and the slander. He knows. And then he said, when he says, do not be afraid, because he takes it personally. And he has walked through this thing called the furnace of affliction. And when he sees suffering people, he says, but you are rich. If you've kept your faith, if you're faithful, you're rich. He, it's because there's only one thing that motivated Jesus, and I think when he sees it in other people, he can't help but affirm it. He can't help but say to this, this little body of suffering believers, because what motivated Jesus, it was love. Sure, it was love for the Father, but you know who else it was love for? It was you. The thing that motivated Jesus was his love for every person. He saw Smyrna and he said, you haven't lost your love for him, for others even though he wasn't coming through maybe the way they wanted. They trusted him to know it was best and they loved him still for who he was. Have you done, ever done anything crazy for love? I mean, really crazy for love? One of my boys was in high school. He had a friend who was really head over heels for this girl. So he decided to pull off this surprise early morning sunrise breakfast and the way he advertised it to the girl was, I'm gonna, we're gonna go up to Lake Town Beach, which is a little beach near here, he said, we're going to watch the sunrise over Lake Michigan. <laughs> now, if you're not from here, what people are laughing about is we only watch the sun set over Lake Michigan here. <laughs> so when my son asked him about it, he pulled it off. After he asked her, after it was all over, he said, how'd it go? He said, well, we had to turn around and watch the sunrise. But I didn't realize, he said, details, details, right? When you're crazy in love, you, you run through walls, you do all kinds of things. So where did the people of Smyrna get this crazy love where they were still helping their neighbors? They were still so peaceful and serene in the face of death and some horrible deaths were, were, were forced upon early believers. They got that from their own savior. In Hebrews 12, it says this of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what the joy was? It was you. You were the joy set before him. You. You were the joy set before him. You were all that was on his mind. 
You were the reason that he came. It was for the joy set before him that you, he wants you. He loves you. And I thought we should, we should close out this time and just spend some time just singing one last song. It's a great song that has some great words in it that reflect this whole message. I was in Rome two, two falls ago, and all that's left there are ruins. There's no, there's no temples to goddesses and gods anymore. There's no emperors. It's just all broken down rubble. And Christianity marches on and on and on and on. It's because the joy set before our Heavenly Father was so strong and he wants every person to know him. And we get a chance as a body of believers to have, believers to have a collective spirit that embodies that and recognizes that and welcomes the sinner and, and everybody who feels like an outsider and says, come on home because we were all there ourselves once. I love the way the song, and we'll get to it in a couple stanzas, but it says, if having my heart was worth the pain, what joy could you see beyond the grave? How wonderful, how glorious. Praise be to God as you close out this, we close out the service and you sing along with us here.